EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast. I'm Toria Rainey, Program Assistant at BU's Center for the Study of Europe. Today is Friday, December 9th, and I'm talking to Dr. Ruxandra Paul, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Amherst College and an affiliate of the Minda de Gunsberg Center for European Studies at Harvard University about the emerging future in Europe. So my name is Ruxandra Paul. Uh, I am Assistant Professor of Political Science at Amherst College. Uh, I'm European. <laughs> and I, I'm originally from Bucharest, Romania, and uh, I came to the U.S. for uh, for my undergraduate education. I was at Williams College, uh, where I finished with a double major in political science and French. Uh, and then I went to Harvard to continue my education, so I got my Ph.D. Uh, from Harvard University in comparative government, and... I study, I study European politics, and specifically I study international migration uh, with an emphasis on the European Union. So uh, my book project, uh, Citizens of the Market, looks at new forms of international migration within the borders of the European Union and their political effects. And specifically, I want to uh, examine um, the, the kinds of uh, political changes that uh, result uh, from the fact that a big proportion of uh, people in Central and Eastern Europe uh, take advantage of the fact that as European citizens, they can move freely on EU territory. So they can take advantage of employment opportunities abroad, um, and they can cross between their, their country of origin and their countries of, of destination. They can cross borders. They can come back. So there are all these forms of what I refer to as high mobility migration that have emerged and that are connecting places in Central and Eastern Europe, communities in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, with countries from the West. And that is interesting because these people are not your typical migrant. They don't even think of themselves as being migrants or immigrants. Um, they, uh, they see themselves as uh, going abroad uh, to work. And even when they're talking about it, they say, oh, uh, I went out, which means out of the country, which means crossing all of these borders, actually. You know, but they talk about it as, as if it were this natural thing. I went to work, and going to work means going to Italy or going to France or going to Spain. Um, and, and then the, the money they make there helps them uh, climb up the social ladder at home. So that's, that's their view. That's, that's their goal. Uh, but what I'm interested in is really seeing to what extent transformations in countries of origin go beyond material remittances. So I'm looking at non-material remittances. I'm looking at transformations that have to do with changes in political ideas, uh, in the way in which people connect with the state and with the market, uh, and also the way in which 
these new ideas that people uh, develop as a result of living in two places at the same time or in more places at the same time, uh, how that has an impact on uh, closeness to political parties, to certain political ideologies, uh, and how that influences voting. So there is a part of my work in which I am comparing uh, regions that have a higher level of engagement in patterns of high mobility migration, so places where more people move back and forth, uh, commute internationally, um, with those that have less high mobility migration. Uh, and, and that has produced a set of very interesting findings about the way in which um, we're not just seeing transformations in the countries that receive migration, but also in the countries where migrants are coming from, there are profound political transformations uh, that, that shape politics. Uh, so, so those are my area of expertise. Uh, I also work on um, democratization. Um, I have uh, I, I work on transnational social protection. I've recently uh, worked on that as a as a result of being a member of the Transnational Studies Initiative at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard, um, and. I also have an interest in cyber politics. So my research agenda uh, revolves around uh, transnational flows, flows of information, flows of political ideas, uh, migratory flows. Uh, so that's, that's where I'm coming from. You asked a long question, so I'm not <laughs> sure at this point if I, asked, if I managed to answer all the parts of it. So tell me. Absolutely. <laughs> if, if there were some that I'm that I'm forgetting right now. <laughs> no, pretty much nailed it. Okay, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so basically one tenet that we've thought a lot about is the idea of democracy. And Nicholas Luhmann asserted that one thing that's unique about democracy is that it keeps open the possibility of future choice. So with that in mind, what ways do you see choice being integrated into the democracy that's currently in place in the European Union? Well, there are there are several ways in which you can approach approach this question of of choice. So, um, when you're looking at migration patterns, to approach it from my, you know, my my in a, in a way that's informed by my research. You, you see there that the opportunities that the European Union has created for its citizens um, increase the types, the, the range of choices that are available to them. So uh, people have a choice when it comes to where they work, where they study, where they live. They don't have to be limited to the, national, the, the space of the nation state. Uh, they can engage with the labor market or with educational opportunities elsewhere. They can cross what used to be very costly to cross uh, borders um, in order to, uh, to develop a different lifestyle that's much more European, if you will, that, that 
allows them to access opportunities available abroad, allows them to disconnect in some ways from the options that are available in their country. Um, and for democracy, this can be both a good thing and a bad thing. And the problem is, uh, the, the, one of the problems, one of the challenges that democracies are facing right now comes from the fact that um, democracy is actually predicated on closure. So in order to have functioning democratic institutions, the political system needs to be able to discriminate, to figure out who is an insider of the polity and who isn't. And so when you have groups of people who are moving across borders much more freely, uh, this produces a lot of tensions for the traditional institutions of a, of a democratic state that are predicated on closure and predicated on this ability of the state to make a determination about who belongs and who doesn't, who's an insider and who isn't, who has rights and who does not. Uh, so this is why right now in Europe uh, you have discussions about uh, what choices should be made available to individuals and to what extent countries still have a choice when it comes to controlling what happens on their territory. Um, there are very interesting areas that can be examined that have to do with um, international law, European law, um, individual human rights specifically, and also the kinds of standards that we have come to see democracies as abiding by. Um, take the example of the current migration crisis. Here you have problems that emerge from the fact that you have a system that is set up in place. You have um, you know, European citizenship. You have free movement of people on EU territory. And that's something that has worked very well for the EU. Uh, but it was assuming a certain level of migration across the external border of the EU. So things were relatively in good shape when it came to having the system working for insiders of the EU. Once you, had, once you started having flows of migration across the external border of the Union, uh, that opened up uh, a range of questions about how this should be handled. Uh, Basically, according to European law, um, these migrants should be processed by their first, the country that uh, is the fir their first point of entry in the EU. But, but in a majority of these people do not want to stay in the country that is their first point of entry in the EU. So the question is, do they have a choice? Are are they? Are they? Uh, 
are, are they going to be forced to stay in the country where they first registered on EU territory? Or does, uh, does their preference for one country over another, or uh, does their, the fact that they can rely on a set of resources in a, a certain country, so migrants have access to uh, networks, support networks, diaspora networks that, that can help them, um, should that be taken into account? And we don't really know at this point. There have been uh, there have been ways in which the EU has been trying to manage migration flows on its territory, but taking individual choice into account, factoring that in, has has proved to be incredibly difficult. And so, uh, choice is present at a variety of levels. You have the choice of citizens, of citizens of EU member states. Do they have a choice when it comes to uh, um, when it comes to figuring out what shape this, uh, you know, the, the the polity ought to take at the national level, the ways in which uh, it should interact with supranational level politics? Increasingly, you're seeing uh, pressures to. Uh, to, to bring more uh, participatory tools uh, into democratic politics. There is this idea that there, there is a disconnect between citizens and government, uh, that um, the relationship between citizens and their, uh, and their representatives uh, in European democracies has to be revitalized in some sense, that there is a disconnect because so much power has been uh, delegated, so many competences have been delegated to the European Union level. Um, and, and many Europeans feel alienated. They feel like they don't have a choice because mainstream parties seem to have reached consensus on the fact that integrating at the supranational level is good, um, and however, European integration does create categories of winners of, and, and losers. Uh, so there, there is a sense in which currently uh, in discussions uh, around Europe on political themes, um, the idea of choice has reemerged with um, in connection with the idea of democracy, of the relationship between between state and citizens, uh, the relationship between different levels of governance and citizen, um, and the the ability of citizens to have a say when it comes to defining the boundaries of the political community. So that's one thing. The second direction and the second dimension of choice. Uh, is uh, has to do with the types of constraints that regional integration sets on countries. So if you agree to harmonize policy, that creates certain uh, certain limitations. You're not able, you, you don't have as much freedom of choice as you used to prior to that commitment to integration. Uh, and especially with challenges coming from the mig uh, as a result of the migration crisis, as a result of uh, uh, security challenges, uh, increasingly political elites have been asking questions that have to do with 
how much choice countries have. So uh, even in relationship to uh, to participation in the eurozone, so it it extends to matters having to do with the economy. How much choice do they have when it comes to European integration? How much choice do they have when it comes to more broad multilateral cooperation, transatlantic relations? Uh, how much choice do they have uh, when it comes to dealing with an exogenous shock like the migration crisis? Huge inflow of, of people over the EU border into certain countries. Uh, can governments develop their own strategies for dealing with that? Or, uh, and, and how much choice is there actually in, in coping with it? How, how much control? So the question of choice has been also connected with the, the question of control. Um, and, and last but not least, there is the issue of people who are extra communautaire, who come from outside the European space and who are desperately trying to enter the European space because they associate it with a space of choice because they see, they think that their life choices will be um, made, that, that, that they will be facilitated, that they will be made some, somehow, somewhat easier by being present in the European space of choice rather than the outside European space. And and there it's it's really unclear whether this vision of Europe as a space of opportunity is still open in the current context. So when you have such a huge uh, flow of people across the external border, what kinds of choices are still available to these individuals? What kinds of choices are available uh, as a result of national politics? What kind of choices are available as a result of European, EU-level poli policies and politics? And finally, uh, in what way does the international legal framework have to be um, reconsidered? Have to, uh, how does it have to change in order to, uh, to accommodate and to give actual real choices to these individuals? Where do you think Europe is headed on each one of those levels? I mean, I know that we talked a little bit about in terms of policies and politics, there being a citizenship level and then a national level, an EU level, and then a European level. Um, do you see any of those levels particularly advancing more than others? Do you think that there's any sort of future there that's unlikely or is likely? So. Since the end of World War II, the direction in which uh, Europe has advanced uh, is that of trying to address transnational issues uh, by developing transnational solutions. So in general, in response, the response to a crisis was to try to address it by integrating policies, by harmonizing policies across EU member states uh, and and right now there 
I mean, there's always been pushback against that. Uh, but, but European institutions, so the supranational level of governance was created to deal with, uh, with problems that could not be solved by nation states working independently from each other. So um, integration evolved more ambitiously in, on economic issues because those were seen as being more technocratic and uh, the, the understanding was that it was easier to reach consensus on what should be done, on the, the, the way in which uh, you know, market uh, obstacles to the, fun- the free functioning of the market could be removed. So people were agreeing very broadly that free trade was the way to go, that um, the, a single market at the European level should be developed, such that people, goods, capital, and services can move freely across borders. Um, And then even when the EU started to expand, so the, well, initially it was the European coal and steel community and it was a very limited um, political economic project of, of bringing those industries together for, for member states. And then in response to challenges, um, this project that started in a way so modestly um, expanded. So it added, countries started to integrate uh, more policy areas. Um, the, the membership of, uh, of the European community uh, started to grow. So more member states were added. There was the expansion towards uh, Mediterranean countries. Um, uh, there was the expansion towards uh, the UK. Uh, and then after the end of the Cold War, that there were the expansions towards Central and Eastern Europe. And for each wave of enlargement of the European Union, uh, new policies were integrated. So uh, in the Mediterranean uh, enlargement of, of the European Economic Community, there were concerns about whether or not these countries could actually harmonize their policies economically, whether they could be on the same page in building a single market as the older member states. Um, and how were the visible inequalities, economic inequalities, between uh, old member states and new member states, how could those be addressed? And in response to, the response to that was to develop a social policy uh, and a transfer policy uh, in the, uh, uh, at the European level in order to help some of the uh, uh, less developed uh, regions catch up with the rest of the Union. Um, in response to uh, the challenges of enlargement towards new democracies in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, the reaction from European institutions was to develop political criteria for membership and to say, this is what an EU member state should look like. And as long as a country is committed to implementing these standards and uh, fulfilling our expectations when it comes to democracy, when it comes to uh, uh, market policies, we are fine with accepting 
with accepting that country in into the club, basically. Uh, and this is how the Copenhagen criteria emerged, and that was the basis. Right now, we have that. We have the profile of a country that is a an EU member state, and that comes precisely from the fact that at that point, the EU had reached a moment of crisis where people were saying, well, you're accepting these new democracies um, and new market economies that were that have a long history of communism. How is it that we're going to be able to uh, keep the, the EU functioning uh, in these conditions? How can we make sure that we are all on the same page? And the solution was to integrate further and to produce uh, to, 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 to advance, to develop EU European citizenship, to set up the standards for countries to join, and so on. Right now, though, there is a, a, a lot of pushback against this type of approach. So as we've seen with Brexit, as we are seeing with uh, current calls in a variety of countries for uh, referenda on uh, participation in Eurozone or participation in membership in the European Union. Um, it's, it's unclear uh, the, the extent to which political elites and also citizens uh, see integration as being still the way to go, the way to uh, respond to challenges. Uh, and many argue that integration has gone too far in, uh, in, in some of the areas where, uh, that represented the, the strong points of the European Union. So many are saying that economic integration uh, uh, went too far before uh, political substance was added to the European project. And, and so some, some countries, uh, some political leaders, are starting to say, okay, maybe maybe we should take a step back and reconsider our commitment to this project and what it does in terms of politics, what it does in terms of uh, uh, economic advantages and disadvantages. Um, and so um, approaches to European integration vary a lot. Uh, across states and even within states, there are some uh, pro-EU voices, there are some more Eurosceptic voices, um, and there is variation when it comes also to uh, different policy areas. So when it comes to uh, participation in uh, in a common foreign policy or a common policy vis-a-vis -vis the migrants that are coming in. There has been pushback uh, against the possibility of the EU integrating more uh, and, and further constraining what countries can do to control who is on, on their territory. But at the same time, when it comes to things like European security, uh, citizens and political elites tend to agree that to cope with a political issue like terrorism that is transnational, uh, you need to have a transnational solution. So 
like it or not, there are these uh, th- there are these challenges that come from uh, transnational phenomena um, and the patterns that have to do with globalization that put pressure on countries to come together and to adopt multilateral solutions rather than try to address problems as if they were working in a vacuum. Again, I tell me how much how much what 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 I'm missing or what it's what, really, what else really you would like you. whatever would, you would whatever like, to, you'd say. like to talk about. <laughs> so, no, but like can can you repeat some yeah, of yeah, the yeah. Um, things that you wanted me just yeah, to make sure so, that we have everything in? <laughs> <laughs> we we absolutely do. Um, just thinking about kind of you know the future of EU governance. I know that one thing that you had mentioned was this idea of nationalism. Um, do you think that nationalism is going to affect the EU governance? Do you think that there's a rise in nationalism, or do you think that you're starting to see? more Europeans thinking of themselves first as Europeans or first as their national identities? Like, where do you think the role of a citizen's identity comes into play? Generally speaking, Europeans still think of themselves first in national terms and then in terms of belonging to um, the European Union. But that's fine because the EU itself never had the ambition to succeed as a political project that would replace nation states. So the the European project uh, never aspired to create a super state. Uh, the idea was that countries would come together um, and solve problems together because those problems could be addressed in cooperation better than if the countries were to do this individually. So obviously as integration progress from the first core of integration that had to do with coal and steel, so very uh, clearly defined sectors of the industry, Obviously, leaders, the European leaders who did it at the time did it strategically, and they knew that the goals of integration were not just restricted to having coal and steel industry uh, flourish. That, the, the goals were clearly political. So this was done with some political aspiration in mind, but that political aspiration concerned maintaining, uh, maintaining peace, uh, and reducing the types of toxic dynamics that led to World War II. Uh, and, and, and so by integrating industries, parts of the, uh, parts of the economy that are uh, strategic industries, the goal was to make it very difficult for countries to, uh, to, to come in conflict with each other. Uh, the idea was that they would have common goals. Um, they would be developing. They would that everyone would win from these arrangements. They would cooperate. They would trade freely. Um, and uh, because of having these, because of have, so when countries are integrated economically, they 
their incentives for going to war with each other are greatly reduced. So it was an economic project that had political ramifications. And these had to do with ensuring, guaranteeing peace and prosperity on the continent. Now, the kinds of issues that we're seeing with, with the increase in diversity of, uh, of citizens, with the fact that you have, um, again, with the migration crisis, you have huge numbers of people who are uh, entering Europe. You have, uh, in 2015, there were around a million uh, new uh, entries in, in the EU from outside. Uh, from outside Europe. Um, there is a reopening of a lot of questions that were considered close for a very long time. Uh, questions that have to do with the state, questions that have to do with political community within national borders. Um, so unsurprisingly, there are also questions about the demos, about the people, who is the people in these countries, and who, who determines who, who belongs and who doesn't. Uh, as a result of that, um, some political leaders have brought up uh, national identity and are trying to, uh, to take advantage of that for, uh, for political gains. And this is something that happens. Political leadership matters. So um, political elites can either uh, try to organize political conversations around nationality, or they can, um, or they can acknowledge the fact that uh, belonging or loyalty uh, or citizenship is about much more than that, and that there are multi mul multiple coexisting identities, uh, and that not everything can be reduced to the dichotomy of national or not national. Uh, so right now, because of the economic crisis, because of the migration crisis, because of the perception that European uh, supranational institutions un are under pressure and that they're not performing as well as we would want them to. Uh, the political climate is, in a sense, ripe for this type of movement, this kind of rhetoric, uh, this kind of uh, political direction to, uh, to emerge. It's not something that is new in any way. It's something that, you know, uh, the Front National started in France uh, in the late 1970s. Uh, so, and, and it started in relationship with um, post-colonial migration patterns and the fact that people from the Maghreb, from the former French colonies, were coming to uh, France to work uh, and that their presence was, incre was increasingly visible in, uh, in French cities, uh, in, uh, in, in, in the labor market, and so on. Uh, 
so so these uh, these movements are not new um, but they follow certain cycles that are determined by evolution in uh, migration patterns in economic opportunity uh, uh, and that's on the demand side of politics kind of what voters want or what we think voters want but there are also dynamics having to do with mainstream political parties that may choose to raise the, the idea of national identity as crucial or not so uh, they also have a say when it comes to what uh, how, how, how central uh, the idea of a nation state is to political debates and uh, right now a part of this pushback uh, against further integration uh, has to do with trying to recreate a certain level of closure of the political community. Democracy requires a certain level of closure of the political community, but the question is, uh, to what extent this closure is possible, to what extent it is um, still in accordance with international law, uh, to what extent is it democratic, uh, to what extent does it respect the rights of, of people who are uh, members of these polities, and uh, to what extent does it align with what we take right now for granted, the fact that there are uh, international organizations, that there is cooperation on a variety of issues, is that something that will continue? Or is that a commitment that we are uh, no longer uh, as strongly attached to as we used to be in the past? Um, so there are these fundamental questions that have to do with the state-citizen relationship, with the nature of democracy at the national level, uh, and also with uh, commitment to um, international level decision making and multinational uh, cooperation um, that are all open in a sense by current events in 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 Europe and just to to conclude the big challenge is that we do not up until now we do not have clear ways in which democracy would be configured or reconfigured at the international level. Up until now, we have thought of democracy at the nation-state level or at the state level, but not beyond that. So the type of effort that it takes to imagine a future for Europe in which democracy and the state would be less connected is tremendous. <laughs> Lastly, going off of that, um, I know that you had mentioned a couple of goals and ideals that the EU had set out initially in its founding to ultimately achieve. Um, do you think that those goals are being met 
by the EU? And do you think that um, if they're not, what would you like to see happen for the future of the European Union? And how would you get to that democratic point that you were just talking about? In a perfect world. (laughs) The agenda of the EU, what the EU envisioned as a future for itself, uh, has changed a lot. And it has gone beyond just establishing a single market um, into creating a new type of citizenship European citizenship that is complementary. It's not something that replaces national level citizenship, but it's uh, it's unprecedented. It's a type of citizenship that is not connected uh, that 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 gives rights and creates obligations in connection with um, with a supranational geopolitical entity. Um, so the EU is an experiment, an evolving experiment that is quite flexible, that reacts to uh, input that comes uh, from uh, member states, from member states that are representing their, uh, their citizens. So there is a lot happening, and, and there, there is a lot happening in the EU following democratic channels because the those who are uh, representing member states in the European Union and in European institutions are uh, are politicians who have the public mandate from their citizens at the national level. So in a sense that used to be considered sufficient to guarantee that European policy at the supranational level was democratic enough. Obviously, the, as the European integration project evolved, new institutions were added. So the European Parliament is now directly elected by uh, European citizens. Um, there are new ways in which the connection between uh, the political project of uniting Europe and individual citizens um, has been established. Um, in terms of envisioning you know the, the future uh, for for Europe, Europe is what its member states, so the European Union is what its member states, uh, what political elites and ultimately what citizens want it to be. So uh, the best way for it to uh, to grow, and really the the only way in which it can uh, it can evolve, is by incorporating this feedback that it receives constantly uh, through the channels of representation that are established, and even the shortcomings that we're seeing in the process of integration and in the current institutional structure that exists uh, reflect decisions that can be traced back to member states if 
the EU looks a certain way currently, it's because this is exactly what member states could agree on. Uh, the EU does not really have uh, ways to escape that type of control. So yes, there are some institutions in the area, there are some institutions like the European Commission that uh, function uh, more independently, some, some, somewhat more independently from uh, member state control uh, than others. But ultimately, everything can be traced back to political elites and to, um, through them, to citizens of European countries, of European democracies. So the future of Europe depends on what's, what Europeans will want the European Union to look like in the future. It depends on what political elites want the, the European Union to look like in the future. And, and so I think that what we can expect is that there will be a lot of conversations around this, around how at this point in time, ideas about um, a united Europe have to be reconsidered and adapted how much are we comfortable with? How much pooling of sovereignty are we comfortable with? Um, how much authority do we want to be delegated to European institutions? And how much of it do we want to still be under individual country control? Uh, obviously, since you raised the question of personal preference, um, I would hope that the accomplishments, the, the, the unique achievements of the European project can be preserved. Uh, and the, the, the way in which European politics um, happen now is very different from what, what happened just a few decades ago. And it's very easy to take um, current current frameworks, current realities, uh, current ways of doing things for granted. But that, that is a big risk. Uh, forgetting, you know, history is important. So looking back at the way in which things used to happen before we had these structures uh, can be very illuminating uh, and can help explain why it is that a commitment to integrate, to transcend the nation state when it came to decision making was made at that point. I hope that those accomplishments can be preserved. Um, I think Europe has made tremendous pro progress as a result of, uh, of accomplishing those things, of, of uh, developing um, integrated policies in a number of issues. I think right now the experience of uh, living in Europe is very different, even for an individual, uh, when it comes to educational opportunities, professional opportunities, travel. Uh, the, the, the European Union has, has been revolutionary in a number of ways.
and it has contributed to prosperity, to security on the continent. And, uh, and so I hope that that will still remain, that those accomplishments will be preserved. And then for the rest, uh, the EU is a living project, so it has to adapt, it has to take into account uh, the input coming from citizens and uh, from political elites that represent citizens. Um, and I think that, um, you know, the, the EU has confronted crisis uh, repeatedly in its evolution. And so I'm not, I'm not pessimistic when it comes to crisis, because as I, as I said earlier, in general, the solution was to develop uh, further and, 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 and to take that challenge as an opportunity for, uh, uh, for developing better ways of, of uh, conducting international politics. Uh, but right now, there are, there are some reasons for concern. So we'll have to see if countries want to renew their commitment to European integration and what, what exact form that commitment will take in the future. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I hope this, well, you will have to do a little bit of editing on all of this because the questions you asked were very broad. So I tried to do my best to address them, but it's, it's difficult. And also when you're talking about it as European level, mm -hmm. uh, that tends to assume a much larger degree of homogeneity among member states than is actually the case. So it's difficult for me, especially since I'm so aware of the differences between countries in Western Europe, countries in Southern Europe, Nordic countries, countries in Central and Eastern Europe. It's, it's a challenge to adopt the EU level lens only, but hopefully, hopefully that produced at least some useful things. <laughs>